Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast for the seeking, for the lost, for the doubting, for the deconstructed. Join me, just a regular guy, as we find, keep, and grow our faith in a deconstructing world. Welcome back to Reconstructed Faith, or welcome if this is your first time here. I need to talk about a few things before we continue our study on mere Christianity. I've been going through some stuff in my own walk in regards to being both salt and light, instead of being salty and throwing shade, in regards to having both love and grace, instead of being a banging gong beating you with the truth in regards to this ministry, which is how I view this. If this was just a podcast or something to do for fun as a hobby, honestly, it would be related to music or sci-fi or something else that would take way less work. This is, in fact, an apologetics and theology ministry. But just, just due to who I am and the life I've lived, I don't think that it's for who I thought it was. While it is true that I am deconstructing evangelicalism, and I am questioning creeds and confessions and traditions and trying to reconstruct a biblical faith, it's also true that words mean things. I straight up do not belong in the deconstructed camp because I am all about the Bible and its authority, and often the deconstructed call that into question, and understandably so, because often they have been abused, mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually by misuse of the Bible. And I do not want to minimize or marginalize what they have been through. What's you? What's you have been through if this is you? So even though for a while I thought that the target of this podcast was the Christian who is deconstructing, Due to doubts, due to lack of assurance, due to lack of depth of understanding, I need to be honest. While I love you, and I pray for you, while my heart is hurt that in this crazy post-truth world, you are found in a place where you are lost, confused, and hurt. We both look around us and see a church that doesn't look anything like what we see in the scriptures. But I don't think that I am delicate enough or gracious enough for that audience. If you are listening and you are in that group and this has been useful, that's awesome. I'm glad that I can help you. But I have recently become painfully aware that you don't need a fire hose of information. What you need is a relationship You need vulnerability. You need someone who cannot just give you the answers to your questions, but can validate your pain and your experience. And I don't know how to do any of that. Now, I want to. I want to build a community that would be a place for you that would be safe. I don't think that the others who listen, the types that are attracted to authoritative teaching, would be as gracious, and I don't want to cause you any more harm. I don't want you to be abused by any more Christians. 
but I don't know how to build what I thought I was trying to build. So what is it then? What is reconstructed faith? I would like to think this is useful for new believers that want a faith based on evidence, that want to know what to believe and why, or a Christian who is as I was. You've been a Christian for a while, or most of your life even, and God is saying, dude, there's more. There's a whole nother level to this thing. Maybe you've also noticed that what you see in the Bible is pretty different from what we see in the church right now. And you don't think that what you've been taught is what it really says, but you also can see the problems with things like liberation theology and progressive Christianity and some of the other stuff out there. And you're asking yourself, well, what the heck is it then? Where is the biblical middle ground? Where do I start? Also, for the unbeliever who wants to sharpen themselves by better understanding Christian arguments or the seeker who needs that one piece before it all clicks, I think the truth we tackle here, the truths we tackle here, are broadly applicable, and I do my best to represent multiple views and break everything down beyond the Christianese and the philosophical terms. The main point of reconstructed faith is to bring what we believe, that is theology, the study of God, and why we believe it, which is apologetics, and hopefully present it in a way we can all understand better. It is to build a deeper, stronger, more robust faith, one that engages both our hearts and minds. One listener described it this way. This is for those who want to get to the truth of the matter, the people that want to take a look at the reality we live in and connect it to the truth we find in the Bible and find ways to use the wisdom given to us in the Bible in our walk and our walk with the people we affect. Also, you may have noticed the longer release time on this again. There are a few reasons for this. One, God has delivered me into gainful employment, and I am adjusting to having a 9-to-5 again and making time for this podcast. In fact, I am commuting from one and a half to three hours a day, depending on traffic. I am still on my worship team, and I'm still a husband and father, which are far more important callings. Also, something else I'm really excited about is that I have begun doing work with other podcasters, co-hosting, guest spots, these sort of things. For the first of these guest spots, check out Kingdom on the Road. Joe from Buddy Walk with Jesus and Kingdom on the Road has been teaching me a lot. In fact, most of these revelations I just shared with you about um, the nature of this ministry have come with Joe's help. And uh, honestly, he's been teaching me a lot, and I think that you would all do well to subscribe to his shows as well. And Andrew from Ministry Misfits Media was on with me as well, and we all discussed why Christians are bad at having friends. It was deep and meaningful and lots of fun. You should check that out. Check out Ministry Misfits as well if you really want to know the culture behind the scenes 
that has created this climate of toxic evangelicalism. Anyway, I have an idea for some other shows that I can do more easily, even in my car. The first one people really seem to be excited about, Bible Rants. That's B-Y-B-L-R-A-N-T-Z. So, this is me off the top of my head talking about giving commentary for thoughts on application, maybe even ideas for prayer based on small sections of scripture. The second would be the Christian Commuter Podcast. I don't know about you, but a lot of my drive time is spent in prayer and really in talking myself through life's problems, flipping back and forth from prayer to theological thoughts to even just talking to myself about stuff. And I really think it could be useful to put something like this out there, not only because we need more people being raw and vulnerable, but because it really demonstrates the Christian life and what it means to deal with life through the lens of theology and really just walking with God in general. I am, after all, a father of two and a stepfather of three, and we also have my nephew living with us as well, who was abandoned by his parents. My sister I didn't know I had, and her now ex-husband, and we all live with my parents because they're getting old and their house is falling apart and they don't have the money for their mortgage and repairs, and rent in my neck of the woods has doubled or even tripled over the past 10 years or so, and I just can't afford to live on a single income. So, as you can imagine, with kids ranging from 5 to 19 and everything else, things get interesting. <laughs> and... uh I just think it might be edifying to watch me work through life in prayer and incoherent babbling. Before we get into it, there is a link in the description to purchase Mere Christianity, as well as a study guide and the main Bible I use. These affiliate links give me a kickback anytime someone uses them to make a purchase. This does exclude Amazon items, however. So if you purchase the Audible or the Kindle, it does not support the show. So if you are a reader at all, please buy a physical copy. This will in fact help keep the show running and help prevent future delays. Thank you for your support. Okay, so last time we talked about objective morality and how Romans 1 can be used to make the case that the fact we all believe in a right and wrong, and that they are generally the same, is in fact proof that God has written the law on our hearts. Well, this week we're going to look at some common objections to this. But I do want to make a statement first. Sometimes with, sometimes with writers like Lewis and Chesterton and and the like, they say things so well and cover a topic so holistically that there, there isn't much else to say. So what I am going to do is this. I'm going to look at these objections, and I'm going to answer them for myself. We can use this as an exercise in doing apologetics. I may reference Lewis and the way he handles these objections, but I really want to take a crack at this for myself. So the first objection is that objective morality does not prove God. 
it doesn't mean there is some kind of supernatural higher order morality or that we that we are all somehow plugged into the law of god is in fact not written on our hearts it can in fact be chalked up to what is called herd instinct now before we get into really breaking down this objection, let's just look at some definitions of what herd instinct is so that we understand the objection. This is very important in any kind of discussion, debate, or what have you. When you fail to understand your opponent or their objections, and you are arguing against what you think they mean instead of what they really mean, this is called strawmanning. Perhaps you've heard the term. So, in order to engage the actual objection, we must first understand it. When we argue against a straw man, we don't deal with the true objection at all, but a proxy. And worse than this, if we are unaware of this straw man we have created, we in fact think we have answered the argument, and we get offended or even hurt when we are told that we have not, or worse, we think our opponents slow, daft, or dishonest. Also, strawmanning is disingenuous. We are the people of God. Let's be honest, genuine, and intelligent people. So with all of that said, what is herd instinct? Herd instinct, an inherent tendency to congregate or to react in unison, especially a theoretical human instinct toward gregariousness and conformity. Okay, let's look up what it is to be gregarious, tending to associate with others of one's kind. Okay, so let's continue and see if we can get a better picture of what Lewis's objectors meant by herd instinct. An inclination in people or animals to behave or think like the majority. A behavior wherein people tend to react to the actions of others and follow their lead. This is similar to the way animals react in groups when they stampede in unison out of the way of danger, whether it is perceived or otherwise. Okay, so really, herd instinct, herd behavior, whichever you would wish to call it, is two things. One, it is monkey see, monkey do. Whether it is due to peer pressure or some sort of instinct, or it is in fact some kind of passive psychological persuasion, we have a desire to follow the crowd. If everyone picks the blue ball, even if you like red, you are going to doubt yourself, wonder what is so damn good about blue, Wonder if others know something you don't, and you will in fact pick the blue ball also. There has been experiment after experiment proving this. You could be in school, the class could be asked a question, everyone else could give what you know is the wrong answer. And even though you, you, you know you have the right answer, you will by some mystery called herd instinct give the wrong answer. You can research this by looking up what's called the Ash Conformity Experiment. The second part of this herd instinct is the desire to be part of a community. There is a communal instinct. This is the instinct that drives us to want to be part of a clique, club, denomination, political party, what have you. We want to be labeled. We take pride in that label. 
and we even have a loyalty to it, even if that label is the claim you have none. Why is it that those who are rebelling, those who are rebelling, rather, those who feel they are different or misunderstood, then do the same things to be rebellious? Don't believe me? Take a look at punk culture, full of rebels, who all rebel the same way. On a large scale, we have an instinct to preserve our society, not just self-survival, but survival of our family group, community, even our state and country. We see this in animals when they circle around the sick and young so that the predators can't get to the easy prey. So, some would tell us that morality works much the same, that it is some evolved form of higher herd instinct. But, as Lewis states, it, an instinct is something like a sexual urge, or the instinct to eat when you are hungry, or the instinct of a parent to protect its children. It is a strong, automatic, even subconscious want or desire to act in a certain way. But if morality wasn't, was in fact some evolved instinct, as some would say, then why is what we want often different than what we ought? We can see this fight between what we want and what we ought very clearly in Romans 7, 21-24, English Standard Version. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is as we discussed last week, this battle between the law that God has placed on our hearts and our more basic human instinct to that which we want, our desires against what the moral law would have us do. Paul talks often about this battle between the spirit and the flesh. Yes, indeed, our morals and instincts often conflict with one another. It is this reason that we honor those who risk their lives to save others. Shouldn't those instincts which are strongest win out? And yet, the firefighter will subdue his own instinct to survive, his own instinct to preserve himself and get out of harm's way to rescue others. We can, for those we love, take a bullet or jump in front of a car or whatever else. When we find ourselves in these situations, we will find within ourselves two conflicting drives. One, our instinct, which tells us to protect ourselves. This is our fight or flight. The other is the moral ought within us, the moral law, telling us to sacrifice ourselves, that those in danger are in fact in this moment more important than we are. The very fact that there is a conflict tells us there is another set of impulses that is a decider. This cannot, by definition, be an instinct, but something with higher authority. Another way this objection fails is that if all morality was simply derivative of instinct, then wouldn't we have good and bad instincts? And yet we do not. As stated before, our instincts are for things like reproduction, food, and survival. These are basic urges that are in fact neither good nor bad, 
It is what we decide to do with them that makes them good or bad. It is, in fact, the moral decision as to how to handle these instincts that makes them good or bad. Our feelings are much the same way. I actually talk to my children about this quite often. My oldest stepson, when he was in middle school, was often quite angry with his teachers. He would lash out in anger and even sometimes twist arms and slap hands, things of that nature of teachers and staff. He would often say, it's not fair that I am in trouble for getting mad. I can't, I can't help the way I feel. So we would have a conversation. Anger isn't good or bad. It is okay to be angry. Often, especially with anger, it is true that we can't help how we feel. But it is what we do with this anger that makes it good or bad. If you choose to act on this anger and harm others or make a fuss, anger is bad and you will get in trouble. Not for being angry, but for what you decided to do with your anger. Why is this? If morality is merely instinct and emotion, why do we have control over how we choose to act it out? So let's move away from emotions and back to instinct. The sexual urge, sex, or even sexual desires aren't bad things in and of themselves. They are a beautiful, wonderful things God made as a part of the human condition, which, in fact, is how God made us, human. <clears throat> so often we talk about our humanity in the way to say that humanity is bad that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. But that is actually not true. God made us with bodies, and he said that it was good, okay? God made sex. He even made sexual desire as part of what it is to be human. But we can choose what we do with this instinct. Do we manipulate people? and commit emotional and mental abuse in order to get them to consent to us because we want sex and they don't? Do we force ourselves raping others, just using their bodies with no care for their soul and mind? Do we, once coupled and committed, act out on our sexual attraction for others? Why is it that we would all agree these are bad things if the desire for sex is just an instinct? Because there is, in fact, an objective standard in play, a deciding factor as to what we do with these urges. This is, in fact, what happens when we let instinct take over. Rape, hoarding food, all of these kinds of things are the results of instinctual behavior. It is, in fact, the ability to rise above this. It is the prefrontal cortex of our human brain that allows us to cancel out instinct that separates us from every other living creature on the planet. I am going to borrow from Lewis here and use a musical analogy, although mine will be much different and I think actually more accurate in some ways. So whether it is piano or guitar or whatever instrument, whether you are playing keys or strings, the instrument itself is only the tool to create the music. Most of us who are practiced have musical muscle memory built up. I can, for instance, without even thinking what the notes are, play a major scale, a minor, actually any of the modes for that matter. 
any chord in any of the caged positions. You guitar players will know what that means. This is like our instinct. It is an automatic reaction that by itself is merely just an instrument. Now, I can, as I said, place scales by rote, and it will in fact be musical, but many, myself included, would not consider simply playing scales, playing music. No, a scale by itself is simply the palette of colors, but not yet a picture. Our instincts are the same way. They are merely the colors that we have to play with. But, once you add the theory of what notes we ought to play and what notes we ought not play, once you begin to group notes together, you will very quickly realize which notes sound good and which do not. It is this music theory that is like our sense of morality. It in fact tells us what to do with instinct, which notes to play together, which notes are dissonant, and then we can observe the truth of this theory by observing that what sounds good is also good according to the rules. This is why, as we talked about earlier, there seems to be a deciding factor when we must choose between two instincts. Again, if it was just a matter of which instinct is the strongest, that for self-preservation would always win out. So, isn't moral law really just a social convention? Don't we agree as a society about immorality, what kinds of things are good and bad? After all, aren't our laws decided by councils and by votes, at least in the free world? Don't we teach our children through discipline and other ways what is good and bad? Don't we have to teach them not to lie, not to hit, to share instead of steal? To an extent. But then kids instantly know when something isn't fair or when someone has been mean to them, even if you don't teach them the rules. So no, even children have, as we discussed when looking at chapter 1, this sense of a higher standard that they are appealing to, even though they're often too young to be aware of this standard. So, I would tell you that just because it must be developed and to an extent be taught, doesn't mean it isn't still some outside objective moral standard we are teaching. After all, as we have already given evidence for most societies, now and throughout history, have had the same ideas about what is fair and what is just and what is good and bad. Social convention, on the other hand, things like manners, covering our face when you burp or yawn, sneezing into your elbow, chewing with your mouth closed, not smacking, elbow off the table, I could go on. Make eye contact, but not too much eye contact, don't cut in line, and on and on, etc., etc. These are conventions. They are taught and they are societal, not moral issues. Unlike morality and the laws that stem from it, convention is something that is unique to each culture, country, tribe, what have you. Some people don't wear shoes indoors. Some people still take off their hats when they say hello. These are social conventions. Something I learned recently is that tipping your server when you go out to eat is an American thing. In other countries, it can actually be seen as insulting. Again, this is a convention. So, the idea that morality is mere convention fails. Because convention, first, is something that is not universal. It varies from place to place from time to time. And second, moral 
uh, moral law is inherent. Kids don't need to be told when something is mean or unfair or unjust. They just know these things. There is some higher standard they are appealing to, some standard outside themselves they are comparing all other things to. If you listened to chapter 1, we talked about the idea from Romans 1 that God has actually put his law in our hearts, that we in fact by creation know right and wrong. This is not by convention, it is by design. God is a moral God who has created moral creatures. One reason that leads to morals being seen as convention is the exaggeration in people's minds of the differences between the laws and customs of different cultures. When under critical analysis, one could see that while our laws may be different in practice, there is the same underlying morality. We all believe the same sorts of things are good, and bad. We just express this differently. But not only do we exaggerate these differences, but we will make a judgment. Well, that this this way is better than that way, or that way is better. Well, we don't do such and such anymore, or wow, the way you deal with XYZ is so much fairer than how we deal with it. Typically, we all believe our own morals to be superiors to other, that we are all a law unto ourselves and our standards are, of course, the best. But wait, if morality is subjective, if it is convention, if it is a learned standard, how can we claim that one moral view is better than another? How can we claim a higher moral ground? Why do we believe the high road so to speak, exists when it comes to personal conflict and confrontation. Well, perhaps there is a higher standard we are judging against. Perhaps it is this law of God that is placed within each of us? Okay. But as we asked before, hasn't morality changed through time? We used to keep slaves. Now we don't. We used to burn witches. Now we don't. To use Lewis's example, certainly morality isn't a higher objective standard. Now, a standard convention, no, we can admit the difference between what conventions look like and what morality looks like, but there is no reason it still can't be the function of sociology or some other advanced human herd instinct. Why else would our morality change over time? Well, our understanding of the world around us is expanding. We understand things in new and better ways all the time. We no longer burn witches, not because we have risen to some higher moral standard where we no longer do such things, but in fact because we don't believe they exist. We no longer keep slaves, not because we have risen to some kind of higher standard. After all, we still keep animals in cages and use them for labor because we view them as lesser creatures, as we once did indigenous peoples. The only reason they were slaves is because we didn't think them people. If you want to get historical, they were one-third a person. Now, with genetics and other kinds of science, we know that Africans, indigenous tribes, and whatever else, whoever else, no matter how different they look and no matter how strange their practices, are people too. So, our morals didn't change at all. 
It is strictly a scientific matter. But the truth is, that isn't even true across the world. Many countries, many cultures still have slavery. In fact, I heard recently there may be more slaves than ever before, right now. This doesn't mean our morals are superior to those who still have slaves, but merely that our knowledge is. The fact that we have this inclination to say we are better for not doing this or that again is proof that we are appealing to some higher standard. So, really just to restate everything we've discussed, some would say morality is some higher form of herd instinct. We have proved how morality differs from instinct. Some would say that morality is convention. We have proved that convention is taught and differs from place to place while morality is fairly static. The practice and application of a given moral precept may be different from place to place, but the underlying principles are universal. The third is the idea that morality has observably changed over time, so it can't be an unchanging objective standard if it has changed. And we proved, as with the second argument, that really, we have merely changed the practice and application of morality to fit our ever-changing, ever-expanding understanding of the world, while the underlying principles have in fact remained unchanged. Okay, so... We will get into the reality of the law in the next episode, as that is chapter 3 of Mere Christianity. I am not trying to make an objective case here, but merely trying to demonstrate some of the ways that we can philosophically engage this topic. Lewis lived in a time where he was dealing with modernism and rationality. Only that which is physical is real. He was dealing with a full rejection of any notions of spirits or higher beings or higher level truths. Only that which can be understood through reason and logic and observation is real and true. So, Lewis spends the entire first section of this book on the idea of morality as proof of a higher truth, of something beyond ourselves. This moral argument was one of his biggest obstacles to faith. As someone who had seen the horrors of war, he couldn't fathom a god that could allow such atrocities, and this line of thinking was common in his day. Today, we're dealing with postmodernism, as I have said in the last few episodes, and really this levels the playing field, because, well, all things are true. We tend to think that the world is becoming more secular and more atheist, but it isn't. The statistics are that everyone is spiritual now whatever that means. New Age is everywhere, even being pawned off as Christianity. Our society is full of ideas like the law of attraction, karma. We have seen a rise of neo-paganism with people actually believing in the gods of old. So unlike Lewis, whose task was to make a case for spirituality and religion, our task as Christians, and at at least those of us who fancy ourselves apologists, Those of us who are serious about evangelism and don't want to be scared off by the hard questions anymore, our job in a world where spirituality and religion is cool is to prove that Christianity is the true religion. We can believe the lie all we want that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But the fact of the matter is, Christianity is religion. It is true religion and we need to prove it. 
with our lives, with our words, but also be ready to give defense and be able to articulate our position. Again, there is a link in the description to purchase Mere Christianity, as well as a study guide and the main Bible I use. These affiliate links give me a kickback anytime someone uses them to make a purchase. This does exclude, however, Amazon items. So if you purchase the Audible or the Kindle, it does not support the show. If you are a reader at all, please buy a physical copy. This will in fact help keep the show running and help prevent future delays as the goal is to eventually be a full-time podcaster. But that can, op- that can only happen with support of you, the listener. Not a reader? Click the support the show link and buy me a coffee, either one time or you can sign up for monthly support. Want to make a more sizable donation? There is a link for PayPal as well. This show gladly partners with Buzzsprout and is a fantastic resource for podcasters who are serious about their show with some of the best, most accurate analytics on the market, fantastic customer support, and all the tools you need to grow your platform. If you would like to start a podcast or have one already and would like to support your feed, use Buzzsprout. If you use the affiliate link in the description and select one of the paid options, we both get a $25 gift card. Finally, You can find the show on Apple, Spotify, and all the places where podcasts are found. On Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and online at ReconstructedFaithPodcast.com, where you can read my book reviews and blogs as well. Thank you for listening. Until next time.